0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with writer Alyssa Walker about sustainability, the power of journalism, and what it's like to live in Los Angeles without driving. What an amazing gift to not have to do it. It just freed up the city for me in a way that Nothing else that I've ever done has, has changed my life so dramatically and let, allowed me to have so much fun and see so many things I haven't seen.
1: Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Here in New York City, even if you own a car, most of the
1: time you are a pedestrian. In Los Angeles, there are only drivers, or at least that's the stereotype. Design writer Alyssa Walker is out to remake that image and actually change her car-loving fellow Angelinos. Her last name describes her mission. She is an inveterate and determined walker in a city that spreads out over vast distances. She's also a biker and a taker of public transportation. She's into food, sustainability, and gelato, all of which comes through loud and clear when you visit her blog, Gelato Baby. Welcome to New York, Alyssa, and welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much, Debbie. Oh, it's so nice to have you here. The first thing that I want to ask you is about is a magazine that you created, a magazine that you created
0: with your friend Lilia, a magazine called Think Teen.
1: Uh, do you want to tell us about the magazine? Lisa? Oh, yes,
0: it, it was a very popular magazine in the Midwest, at least templeton place, I think where where I lived on my block. My friend Lilia and I, she was my best friend growing up. Uh, we created uh, many different publications, as well as uh, many different commercials that we made with our Sony Handycam. And uh, Think Teen was basically a page-by-page ripoff of the magazines that we were reading at the time. What like, were you reading at the like, time? You know, like YM and Seventeen, and everything was about, you know, does your makeup look good and do boys like you? But And we created this magazine. Um, it was probably about 20 pages. We created two exact copies of the magazine, uh, so each of us could have our own editions of our own issues. A couple months ago, Lilia sent me one of the copies she had found, and I realized from a very young age I was I was very very uh, interested in words and images and how they work together. So I have a confession for you,
1: Alyssa. When I was a young woman, a teenager, I created a magazine as well with a neighborhood friend from my town at the time that I was living in on Long Island. Her name also was Debbie. And we appropriately, aptly named the magazine Debutante.
0: Oh, that's amazing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Unlike you, though, I've lost touch with Debbie and I no longer have a copy of the magazine. So it's just a little bit of memory that I can think back to and reimagine every time I think about it. You're lucky that you have a copy. But now, what I was really struck by when you were talking about this recently, about the magazine, was that you were under the impression at the time that the people who wrote magazines also wrote the ads. So what what gave you that impression?
0: Well, it was all part of the same thing and and looked all the same to me, creative-wise. And I think that's why I I always had this fascination with advertising. I, I knew I wanted to be in advertising from a very young age. I didn't really understand there was even a breakdown within advertising of people who did the writing and, and did the graphics or the art. So I just assumed that they sat down and decided what should be in the magazine. We really like Naxima. Let's make an ad for Naxima and put it next to this, uh, <laughs> uh, what prom dress did you wear? So to me, growing up, I, I would love to know when I actually learned they were different, but I knew I wanted to be in advertising. I thought that the ads were always the most funny, most entertaining parts of the publication. So when, when it started my life with this fascination with advertising and now I've crossed over to the other side of of creating the content. Not as exciting, maybe, but uh, I, th- I think it's still <laughs> pretty fun.
1: Isn't it interesting how we create our own narratives about how things are created and how things are made? I was so fascinated when I was growing up with packages and I would stare at them and sort of project my own stories into them. But when I thought about who made them, I never thought about artists or designers. I thought that printers just of made course whatever they yeah. wanted yeah. <laughs> printed the packages little did i know <laughs> so so you you also talked about how uh when creating this magazine you feel that was the first time in your life that you were intrigued by the combination of words of storytelling and of art and i'm wondering how you made the decision to become a writer
0: As I said, I grew up knowing that I wanted to be in advertising, wanted to make really funny commercials. That was kind of my dream growing up. So I went through the journalism program at the University of Colorado. That's where all the ad students went through. So you would get this background in writing, but also you would study advertising and study marketing, all these other things. So I got a very well-balanced both art, and writing education. Then I went to the Portfolio Center where you create your advertising book and still wasn't quite on either side of the fence. I still, you know, really liked to do the art directing side of it. was very fascinated by design. But something happened at the Portfolio Center. We just had a really amazing group of writing teachers who yes, we're teaching us how to write ads, but taught us how to write very emotively. We wrote these amazing essays, these personal stories. And I realized that I kind of started to fall in love with that, you know, that storytelling that was actually telling a real story, maybe not selling something specifically. And once I got out of school, I was not as enchanted with the world of advertising as it existed at the time, instead I was wanting to write these stories about what was happening down the street for me and in my neighborhood and things that I was observing. So I think I've always loved to write and knew that I could write, but um, in a roundabout way, it was advertising that taught me that I should write.
1: Now, you've spent a lot of your career writing about design, and I read recently that you only like to write about things that are important to you. So why design?
0: Design is something that I guess I was surrounded by my entire life. My mother is a floral designer and uh, a landscape designer, so that was... You know, a given from a very early age. We were working the fields, and uh, you know, wrapping uh, bouquets for weddings every weekend with my mom. And then my dad is just this amazingly creative person. We had like the first Mac in our house. Very technologically savvy, very mechanical oriented, and was able to you know teach us how things worked. So I think the combination of those two things growing up was just a given for me to 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 look at creativity, but also look at uh, functionality of things. And I was always Really obsessed with architecture, I mean this was actually my my other kind of love, but i i didn 't know if that was something that I should could do or should do, but I, I loved how houses worked and um, looking at floor plans and I would always steal architectural digest in this other magazine called unique homes from my my mom 's uh, nightstand and so I, I definitely loved surrounding myself with. Beautiful things, but also had just a very big curiosity about how things worked, I think. And especially coming out of a school like the Portfolio Center that had such this amazing design legacy where it was, you know, kind of hit us over the head every week. We had these great speakers and uh, you're supposed to write about what you know and what is around you. And as soon as I got out of school, I knew all these great designers that were doing great projects. So it was a natural just to write about things that, that they were doing that I was super interested in. So how does one become a
1: professional writer? You went to Portfolio Center ostensibly to create advertising and design work. And then you come out of school and you decide you want to be a writer. How do you go about becoming one?
0: I started by getting a few connections from people who um, had written about the Portfolio Center or um, had written about other designers who came from the Portfolio Center. And a few of the magazines that I wrote for really early on were like Step Inside Design, um, places where I had very personal contacts with people and they just they needed someone to cover something that was happening um, in the design world. That was kind of one phase where I slowly just kind of built contacts and was able to just write the stories that people needed me to write. I didn't really do much pitching at that point, which is when you send an email to the editor and ask if, you know, they'd like this story that you've come up with. And before I even, you know, started to really do that very seriously, I got a job as the editor of Unbeige, a job that I tried out for and told them I knew how to use a blog and basically got the job and had to teach myself how to use movable type in about two days before I started on Monday.
1: Wow. (laughs) Now, for the listeners that might not be fully aware, how would you describe both the site itself, Unbeige, and then also the style of writing? Because it was a very particular style of writing.
0: A lot of people called it like a gawker type site for, for designers. I never... Really saw it as gawker, my my inspiration was always more like People magazine or Us Weekly almost where you would open these magazines and see these bold faced names of these designers getting caught in the act uh, you know at the party. What are they wearing and that really was very interesting to me because I, I feel like uh, designers needed to be placed in that uh, cultural context of being celebrities, perhaps, but um just getting to know them as personalities and understanding who they were as people. And to learn about a lot of their own motivations, I guess, for behind their work. I'll never forget the first time I saw you.
1: It was at a design event, and you were carrying a reporter's notebook. And I think you might have had a pencil behind your ear. And at that moment I was convinced you were the reincarnation of Hildy Johnson from His Girl Friday. I was absolutely convinced that that is who you were. And I can't I I, I can really disassociate the two of you now. I still feel whenever I see Alyssa Walker, she's always bustling about looking for leads, trying to find the, the undercover information that nobody else has and the scoop. And I just love your writing style, whether it be for an un- beige or whether it be for good or for fast company. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of your other gigs. But before I do so, I want to ask why Los Angeles? Why you seem to have this love affair with Los Angeles. I have a love affair with New York City. So, So what is it about Los Angeles that you love so much?
0: Well, so when I got out of school, you know, finished at the Portfolio Center, determined to get this amazing job in advertising, it was uh, the busting of the dot com bubble. It like literally burst, I think, like the week before I graduated. And um, all these jobs I had in my mind to go interview for in San Francisco and New York had just evaporated, and my friends were all getting laid off and, and leaving, you know, fleeing the city basically. So those were the two places I thought I would end up for sure. But I had an opportunity to move into a house in Hollywood, had never been to L.A. in my life. And I was like, you know what, I'll give it a shot. Summer, like, what a great place to be. How could it be bad? You know, if I don't like it, I'll just, you know, move on. There's there's freelance jobs down there, packed up and moved into this house in Hollywood. And that was uh, 10 years ago It'll be 10 years, August 1st. So it was it was a whim. It wasn't even a, a conscious decision.
1: What a 10-year run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so last year, you were one of seven people selected to receive the 2010 USC Annenberg Getty Arts Journalism Fellow. And you were selected to write about design and urbanism, after which you embarked on an intensive investigation of the distinct cultural cauldron of Los Angeles. So talk about that experience. Isn't that great? Those are their
0: words, not mine. But It's just a wonderful way to describe it. Um, This program has been going on for 10 years. And I was in this incredible program um, with with six other journalists, people from China, South Africa, Germany, and New York, you know, as, as far away as New York and Portland, exotic locations. And they took us all over the city, got us access to things that I've tried to, to get into as a journalist, even for years, went to fabulous dinners with some of the best artists and architects and cultural critics in the city. And I spent the whole time just being reintroduced to L.A. in a way that was blowing my mind, you know, every single day about things I didn't know about it or things that I thought about it that were confirmed or completely blown out of the water, denied. And at like the for end, what? Give us an example. Well, I was just talking about this yesterday, but going backstage at Disneyland was probably one of the most amazing experiences that anyone can ever have and not a lot of people get to do it. Did you see Mickey out of costume? <laughs> no, they were very careful not to show us anything that would even ruin our, you know, our engagement with the myth. That makes me really happy. Yeah, oh, they're very yeah, they're very careful about that. I think just learning so much about what Walt Disney was trying to do when he built Disneyland and how he wanted it to be this utopian city where he could take his children because he felt in some way that L.A. had failed him in that way. So he wanted this place where there was wonderful public transportation that took you to every part of the park and this beautiful idealized architecture. Architecture that looked like a main street in Missouri, actually, where he had grown up, which was very similar to where you know I grew up, and just the way that he wanted to make every single part of this designed experience completely controlled from the way that the architecture performs these little optical illusions on you, the way that each story gets incrementally smaller as it gets taller. So you feel this level of intimacy with the buildings around you. So there's all these little tricks. And once you learn this code of of Disneyland, you go backstage and you start to see how the rides work and everything. It just makes you realize that Not only was he like a master of creating this wonderful environment that you can go to, but that's how real cities can and should work maybe. So you see places in L.A. taking a lot of cues from Disneyland, a lot of malls actually, but um, there's a lot to learn from Disneyland. I want to go back and and keep looking for all these little things that we learned about, all these little details, and how you can apply them to the place that you really live.
1: In your proposal to receive the fellowship, you outlined the following objective – to truly examine the future of art journalism, we must look at Los Angeles' 704 Metro Rapid Bus. Alyssa Y. <laughs>
0: Well, you'll have to read the essay. Um, (laughs) You know, everybody wants to say that so many things are representative of Los Angeles, like the film industry or um, driving is another good example, or Disneyland, I suppose. And to me, this bus that I started taking once I I stopped driving, it it goes from downtown from Union Station to the ocean in Santa Monica and just slices through every single part of the city that you can imagine from – very low-income areas on the east side of town to the some of the glitziest uh, addresses on the west side of town. And I look at it as this piece of public sculpture that is going through our city every day. And, and what an amazing triumph of public and private partnerships that are working together to fund this basically free way of getting through the city, allowing you to interact with other people who are different than you every day, and that's a very beautiful piece of machinery. It's, um, one of those buses that has a little accordion type thing in the middle. And they call them the sexy flexies at Metro because they're, uh, they're, they're these, the new kind of, this new kind of bus. They're bright red. It's beautiful. Um, a lot of work for, with artists. Uh, the artist Pay White created the fabric on the inside of the seats. Um, there's a wonderful public art installation that's going up in the video screens of all of them this summer. So I just keep looking at the way that this is very present in Los Angeles, and it's something that so many people in Los Angeles take advantage of, but to so many other people, it's completely invisible. It's the second largest ridership in the country as far as a public transit system, and it does exist, and it, it's mostly brand new, and it mostly works really well. And nobody knows this. It's like the best-kept secret.
1: Now, you've said that the bus is Los Angeles's best chance at a sustainable city, and you yourself have given up driving. Have you given up driving entirely?
0: I mean, I can drive. I'd like to forget though. I I'd, I'd like to just like wipe it off of my So so two questions. <laughs> I'm question. not good at it. <laughs>
1: two questions. Why why did you stop? And and then after that, I want to talk about why you feel that this bus is the last chance at a sustainable Los Angeles.
0: I gave it up partially as a game at first and I I just How finished writing a story. This is it'll be 5 years in the fall. So I used to live in Hollywood, and I lived a few blocks away from the Hollywood Bowl, which is a big theater, a very famous theater. So if anyone who lives next to a major—by a place like that or by a stadium where you get inconvenienced often, you understand that you can kind of lose your mind after a while. I couldn't literally leave my driveway. Like, there was places I could not go at certain times. I was like, okay, you know— I don't need to get in the car. Like, let me just try walking. I'm going to try to walk to this out of Hollywood. Well, that was easy. I'll try to walk to the grocery store now and see if I can do that. Well, that was actually not that bad either. So it just kind of started as a way to be like, let's see how long I can leave it in the garage and, and not drive it. And it became a week. And then it became like two weeks. And, and I was figuring out how to use public transit. And I was walking more and more. It's not easy for everyone. I will say, like, especially people in L.A. who have grown up, not wanting to walk and, and feeling more comfortable in their car, that's fine. But I'd never loved driving. I had never been interested in it in any way. It seemed very tedious to me. And Well driving in Los Angeles
1: <laughs> is one of life's cruel, oh, cruel yes. adventures. But it's I
0: always just thought it was something you had to do to pay the price to live there and have the great weather, you know, it evens out. But what an amazing gift to, to not have to do it. It just freed up the city for me in a way that nothing else that I've ever done has, has changed my life so dramatically and allowed me to have so much fun and see so many things I haven't seen and experience parts of the city that I never would have been able to see. And so what is the farthest distance you've ever walked I've walked from uh, my house to the ocean a few times, which is about 12 miles. And then um, once a year, I do this thing called the Big Parade with a group of people. We walk from uh, downtown, this place called Angel's Flight, to the top of the Hollywood sign. And it's about 35 miles Not straight there, but we walk through all these public stairways that go through all the hills, which were built when people had to get to the amazing trolley system that we used to have in L.A. So there are all these gorgeous hills with all these beautiful uh, concrete staircases running up the side of them. So we kind of map out a route that tries to hit as many of those stairways as possible, uh, getting from downtown to um, Hollywood. And for the last two years, we even slept in a public park on the night between, which was definitely an experience.
1: The work that you accomplished during your fellowship, did it change the focus of your work now?
0: I stepped out of that fellowship knowing that something was going to happen and went straight to Thanksgiving, I guess, and had this week to kind of think about it. And I realized right then that the work I had been doing, writing about design and writing about all these projects and people in the past, had done, ai hope, a really great service to help raise the importance of design and culture and raise the relevancy of what designers did. And I was like, you know what? I could do this for Los Angeles, this like severely maligned city (laughs) that um, everybody loves to talk about how much they hate, even though they don't know that much about it. And I decided I really wanted to focus my work on writing about the people who were making Los Angeles into a different and more, more sustainable or better functioning city and doing it in very creative and socially focused ways. So I've been definitely looking for those stories more that are rooted right in my hometown where I can see what happens after I write about them.
1: Now, you've also been writing for Good, uh, Good Magazine for the last five years mm-hmm. or so. Yep. And you've done 475 posts. Wow.
0: That, you counted them all. That's amazing. Well, you, you could actually, <laughs> if
1: you click on your bio, it, it, it just tells you. That's awesome.
0: I love that. Although, and, party when I hit 500. <laughs> do you remember your first post? I remember my first story for them. It was about Project M, which yes. um, is an amazing design program that everyone should check out. It's uh, started by John Bielenberg. It's a kind of this design lab that used to take place every summer for a month. He would bring young designers and give them a problem and tell give them a month and say, basically, you guys have to figure this out and come come up with something. I had written about it before, but the year I got to actually go and write about it for good, we were in Hale County, Alabama, a lot of people know about it now. Then I feel like they didn't know about it as much. But it's definitely one of the um, poorest counties in the country. Um, it's very famous for being the home of the rural studio where Auburn University st- architecture students were building these affordable um, and sustainable homes for the residents there. Instead of doing these you know, non-existent uh, theoretical concepts, they would actually go build them for a client. So it has this wonderful culture of people who have moved there and are are really trying to help the local community. And um, I was there for about a week. And it was during that week, the young designers, they had learned that a quarter of the population was not connected to the municipal water supply because they could not afford it. And that just seemed mind-blowing to me that that could happen in the United States. Absolutely. It was just... And and a lot of these people had uh, satellite dishes on top of their houses, and no running water. I mean, I don't know if that tells you where our priorities are as Americans. But, you know, they they were like, yeah, I'd like running water. But, you know, it's not that big of a deal for me to go just get it from my neighbor or, you know, go go fill up some. And that was just I just couldn't believe that. And the students realized that that's what they needed to do. And they created this beautiful printed piece called Biometer. Where it was like this newsprint type um, tabloid printed piece and sent it to a bunch of people just with photos and this very interesting story about what they had seen, and could you raise help to raise money? You know, I wrote the story, and I got so many comments about it, and people were donating to this cause because they had seen it in good. And I just remember a year later getting an email from uh, Pam Dorr, who was the woman who was kind of on the ground there managing this, and she sent me a list of all the people who had been helped. They had all gone through budget counseling to learn not only how to get connected to the water, but how to pay their bills over time and telling me all these little anecdotes for each person and, and how they had been affected. And I had never realized that something I could actually write would actually change someone's life. Like you just You write it, people laugh, maybe they react. And that story completely changed the way that I looked at writing and looked at my power as a journalist, that I, I had to tell these stories and... Hopefully, somebody out there was listening and could help.
1: Well, clearly they are.
0: Alyssa, you're also,
1: your work for good has gone beyond writing your weekly column. You're now doing more speaking, you're organizing events, you're curating projects such as Good Design. And I was wondering if you can share what you're doing with Good Design with our listeners. So
0: exciting. Good Design is one of my favorite projects, side projects. So in 2008, Good had this event series called Good December where they had an event every single night at their space in Los Angeles. And Casey Caplow and I, Casey was the creative director of Good, um, is still, still there, and one of the founders. Um, we came up with an idea for a design event where we kind of picked these designers in the community that we wanted to talk, but we didn't want them to just get up and present their work because we know that's a big problem for designers. They just get up there and pop open that portfolio and they don't talk about anything yeah, else. Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> I made this. So... We knew we wanted to give them an assignment, something to do. So we asked them all to uh, attack uh, city problems that they had seen in Los Angeles. So people talked about everything from the issue of water, like we don't have any, um, (laughs) to um, the ugliness of strip malls and what we can do to improve this like blight on our city. And the, the response to that was so great. So we've done it since then in um, several different cities. we did it in San Francisco. We did it in here in New York. And just seeing designers in service of their cities in this way and, and looking at problems that everybody was facing every day it was just so popular. Now you also do quite a lot of writing for Fast Company and were one of the original
1: writers slash editors for the new Co Fast Co Design. Congratulations on your big award, by the yes. way. you recently won an Ellie, beat out against National Geographic, <laughs> Foreign Policy, The Daily Beast, and New York Magazine. Amazing, yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. Blown away, first year out. Yeah, our first year, first out. year out of the gate. Now, you say that you want to or you found that your life changes every five years and you're in the midst of a new five year experience. So what do you feel is the biggest thing that's changing for you now?
0: Well, right now, the, the big focus that I talked about before the shift um, after my fellowship of finding those stories in Los Angeles and devoting my uh, effort to letting people know what's going on in Los Angeles from somebody who might have a surprising perspective, I suppose. Um, so I'm working on these essays that I, I hope will become a book so I can share the report from the last five years <laughs> with with this audience. And I just think in in general, like you talked about some of the events, what I do is action oriented, not just uh, filing a story and walking away from it, but, but really following through on things and writing follow up stories and finding people who you know are doing great things and, and sticking with them and, and supporting them. I, I'm, I'm willing to be an advocate for things that I really believe in.
1: Well, I read that you wanted to create the gelato moment for Los Angeles. <laughs> now, given your business name is Gelato Baby, I was wondering <laughs> if you could weave these threads together for us and explain what a gelato moment yes. for Los Angeles is.
0: So five years ago, I went on this uh, trip to Europe by myself which I recommend, you know, everyone to go on a big trip by themselves. And this was before Eat Pray Love came out, so I just want to say that I did it first. Like I went to Italy and ate a lot of first before her. So there. So, yeah, so forget it. Um, So I was on this amazing trip and trying to do this writing that I was like, oh, I need to, you know, I'm going to focus on my writing and I really, I really got to sit down and do some writing. And you just know when you travel like that, you're just like trying to live. So, you know, (laughs) I'm like, oh, I'll never get to the train station. I forgot to write today. So um, I remember being in Italy and. I all of a sudden just had this very calm, you know, I wasn't freaked out about traveling. I I had this just really wonderful rhythm of going through the days. And all of a sudden I just started to write all these amazing stories. And I had never really written about like architecture or written about food and was like would go visit a building and just sit down and write like 600 words on it and I was like, oh, all of a sudden I'm capable of doing this. It's so effortless. And I realized it was because I was eating about five to six servings of gelato per day. And it must have been because of this, right? Like there was no other explanation. So... um I kind of was trying to coin that phrase because you know, when you, I think it's been described lately as flow. A lot of people talk about creatives, like when you're in that, you know, in that zone. little zone. Yeah. So I was in this gelato flow, but I was, you know, tr- called this gelato baby because it was kind of this little like uh, warm feeling in my stomach that made me feel uh, very happy and very fulfilled and, and very creative. And these ideas were kind of turning around in my stomach and, and fueling me. So that's where the name came from.
1: Well, I can't wait to see what gelato moment you're going to be able to create both for your own life and for Los Angeles. (laughs) Thank you for being on Design Matters today, Alyssa.
0: Thank you so much, Debbie.
1: You can find out more about Alyssa Walker at www.gelatobaby.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.